okay, that's fine. Um, well, first of all, I'm very happy to uh, present part two today. Um, obviously, it's my second time at Geary. I was here last year from October to December, and then I uh, talked a little bit about the formation of transfer networks between football teams. And now part two is going to focus on something different. It's going to focus on the careers of uh, professional football players. And um, I'm very much into like organizations and uh, the careers of players and how organizations are ordered in, in the careers of players. And another uh, word which I would like you to pick up from my title is career sequence. Um, so I see careers as sequences where people move through different organizations and I use sequence analysis to analyze that and then also ask me to talk a little bit about sequence analysis. So that's also what I'm going to do. Um, but first, let me introduce myself. Uh, this is a picture of one of the last matches I played in. And as a young boy, I always wanted to become a professional football player. But as you see from this picture, I didn't really succeed in that goal. Uh, I might have the technical sense, but I don't have the technical <laughs> skills or the speed. Uh, I think some people here would know it if they played football with me. So yeah, I missed out on that goal, so that uh, meant that I needed to find something else to do with my life. And I figured, well, if I can't become a professional football player, then how, why not do the next best thing, which is research about football. And that's what I'm doing now, and I started my uh, PhD in sociology at National Taiwan University. And at the moment, I am a PhD candidate in, in, in that department, which basically means that I finished all my coursework and my qualifying exams, and that I'm now writing my dissertation. I broadly define my research interests are in economic sociology, uh, organizations, uh, professional labor or labor, and uh, social networks. So that's a little bit about myself. And as I said, uh, I'm writing my dissertation. And to give a little bit of background about my dissertation and also how this, what, what I'm going to present today, how that fits in, is uh, uh, like the, the, the central term in my dissertation is basically the interaction between organizations and professions. Um, and the interaction also in their institutional logics. So what I, what I see professional football is, is that you, on the one hand you have clubs and on the other hand you have players. And for a club, very much what is at stake is its own performance. And they try to maximize or they try to get as, as, as good a performance as possible. And in order to do so, they need to compete with other teams. And for players, they want to have the highest career attainment. For, for them, it's all about, okay, how far can I get in my career? And for that, they need to compete with other players. And when you get into the interaction between the organization and the player, then um, uh, it might be that at some point the interests of the player and the team are very much aligned, but well, then there's no problem. But at other points, these interests might be completely far off, and then you get into interesting situations where the club wants to retain the player and the player wants to leave, or the other way around. And that's what I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, and uh, when you talk about that, that uh, interaction, like what I'm very much focused on as an outcome is how the players are the profession and how the organization uses the labor market. So that's a little bit as about my dissertation. Uh, my goal for today is much more modest and much easier or simpler. Um, what I try to do today is uh, to explore and describe the, the careers of players as they're developing across organizations. Um, and I s thought of this goal uh, from two angles or because of two observations. Um, first of all, when you look at the transfer market, then you see that uh, the transfers of players, of players moving between organizations is really very common in football. I mean, I have a, a total database which has 450,000 transfers. And if I look at my smaller database, which includes all the professional teams, which between 2003 and 2011 played at the top two leagues in the best seven countries in Europe, 
then you see that there are 5,000 players and they had more or less 11,000 transfers. So on average, in nine years time, a player like, plays for three different organizations. And if you look at other data sources, like for instance FIFA is a, a transfer market, a transfer monitor system, and UEFA also has some data on this, and for instance FIFA in one year sees uh, 11,000 transfers between countries. So the players only moving between, between two different countries and not including the players moving within the country. So really, movements are very common. And um, when you look into the literature of, uh, about careers and about career development, then you get into uh, what I call the fish pond dilemma. Uh, very much when players move, they very much come up to the question, okay, do I want to stay for my smaller team and be a more important player, or do I want to move up and then maybe become a bench player or become less important in that team? And like they continuously, when moving, they face this trade-off. Okay, good team, bad position, or bad team, but good position. And uh, when you, like there are different terms for this, this dilemma in the literature, and one is, for instance, the promotion paradox. Like Damon Phillips had in 2001 an interesting paper on Silicon Valley lawyers, and he showed that if a lawyer was working for a small firm, he would make it into promote, be promoted into partner much earlier in his career than he, if he would stay with a big firm, and he would have his promotion much later on. So here you also see the trade-off between, okay, do I want to work for a small organization and then have a very good position in that organization, or do I want to stay with the big, big, with the big firm and then be, have much less career development, more or less. So that kind of defines my theoretical focus about how I want to explore and describe these careers. Um, and uh, uh, when you look at the fishpond dilemma and how that changes over time in a career, then what I would say is that in football you have two models of how careers might develop. One is early selection and one is late selection. So under early selection, you see, I made a picture of a small fish. Um, you see a, a player who is still uh, a relatively unknown player and he's very much still developing his capabilities. He first moves into a very big team, a big pond, and he hopes, while he's, sta he's staying in the big pond, to turn into a very big fish. And uh, basically early selection might, might run out in two courses. Like on, on the one hand you have what in the literature is called like sponsored mobility, so that uh, a player moves into the big team, and the big team is really training and grooming that player, hoping that he can become that big player at, at some point. And, um, to do so, the team shield, like shields of competition for these players, and they pick the players that they want to train at a very early age, and they are staying within the team over time. And you have another model of early selection, where again, the team um, selects young players from an early age, and then pushes them through a constant uh, contests for their positions. Like it's more of a, a tournament mobility model. So that it might be that if the small player is judged to be not good enough for a team, that he then moves has to move down and move to a smaller team or move into a smaller pond. And uh, besides early selection, on the other hand you have late selection. And late selection is basically the opposite where uh, first the player starts out in a, in a smaller team or in a smaller pond, tries to become a big player, outgrow that pond, and then after he's outgrown, he's outgrown that pond, pond, then move to a bigger team. So then you would expect there is, uh, in careers there is a phase where the player uh, first plays for the smaller teams, and he has time to build up his experience and to uh, to, 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 to gain or to, to build up his capabilities. And also for the big teams, he has time to screen the best players, and then after some time, they move into into the big teams. 
For FIFA's data, but for my data, it's 11,000 transfers, and then there are 5,000 players. 5,000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you take into account, or do you have data about their age? Right? Um, well, I look over their entire career, so they have different ages, obviously at different stage mm -hmm. stages. Um, and in terms of early and late selection, it's very much about okay, how old are you, and when do you move into the big teams, and when do you move into the, the, the smaller teams, and so on. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, what I, to further expand on, okay, early and late selection, what does that mean? I, I have three examples of hypothetical players and how their the careers might develop. And you have the blue and the green line, which are the early selection. And you have the green line, which is sponsor mobility, and the blue line, which is tournament mobility. What you see with these two lines is that they move into uh, a big team very early on. And then with sponsored mobility, you would expect that competition is shielded off, the team is shielded off, so that players are able to maintain their position in the team much longer uh, over their career. And then maybe towards the end, when they physically start to, um, yeah, physically are not able to cope with, with top-level football, that they start to move down a little bit. And on the other hand, you have tournament mobility, where people, again, move into the high-status teams very early, early on. But then, as they are pushed through contests, and as they lose the contest, then they have to move down to the, the rankings. So then you would expect like much more downward mobility to take place uh, at a very early age of players. And then, on the other hand, with the red line, you have a uh, late selection model, where here you have a phase early in the career where players stay at a, a relatively uh, smaller club, and then when they are selected by bigger teams, then they move up the ranks. And that's, it, it takes place later in their career. And as they are selected, I also would expect them to stay f play for the high status club for a longer period of time, or uh, are able to maintain their position in, in there or so. So that very much concludes like my theoretical picture of how I want to explore these career sequences, and then we come to uh, to, to the data. Um, I took my data from uh, transfermarkt.de. It's a German-based uh, online database which uh, is very wide in scope and has a lot of information on clubs and on players. And um, that's like for me, the, the, the very wide scope is what makes it very interesting. For instance, like FIFA's data is only on international transfers and not on domestic transfers. And you have a lot of the, the football yearbooks, like the, the European football yearbook, and what used to be the Rotmans foot, uh, football yearbook, they're very much focused on one league. Or so then you have a book about the Premier League, for instance, or about the, the top leagues in two countries or three countries at max. Well, Transfermarkt is really like it focuses on the player and it traces the entire career of players. So it's it's a much more comprehensive database, I think. And there are also now coming out some papers which also tested how reliable is the data. And these papers are very favorable about about Transfermarkt.de uh, in that in the sense that they have very accurate data as well. Um, so yeah, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a really good data source. And um, from that data source, I selected all the players which at some point in their career played for a team which is active in the top two leagues of the best seven countries in Europe. So when you played in, uh, when in the top two leagues of England and Spain and Italy and France, Germany, uh, Portugal and the Netherlands, and I consider you as a professional football player. And that led me to a database of 
14,000 players, which is a little bit too much for my methods. It, you know, computationally, it would take too long. So what I did is I randomly selected 1,000 players from that. And based on that, I, I started my analysis. And with these 1,000 players, what I recorded was for every month in their career, I recorded for which club they played, and for that club, I also recorded the status position of that club. So in total, I have a database which has 1,000 players, and then one more, a little bit over 190,000 uh, uh, player months in that uh, in the database. Um, let me get a sip of water as well. Okay, so this way I have a drink there. For the thousand players that you selected, for the all the months in your period, were they for all those months in the top two leagues? No. So some of them were in lower leagues, yeah. and you have the data about which teams they were in. The not necessarily. Um, like I started recording from age 16. Okay. Um, and like what, what the data has, for instance, a player might be playing for a youth team yeah. of a club and then move into the, the first team. Okay. And then I assumed that the period for the youth team started at age 16. And I'm interested in, okay, when did you come into the top two leagues? I see. And also, uh, what also might happen is that a, a club might uh, might play at a lower level and then be promoted into the top into the top two leagues, and then these players are suddenly also moving into football yes. in, in my perspective. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if you mentioned later on not really in the scale of the number of white people and full answer on too much is yeah. computational side or is it just the more massive itself? Um it's uh, one hand on the one hand it's computational size. Like it, it takes too long for my computer to compare all the and on the other hand, uh, like the, the sequence analysis will result into a matrix in which all the different sequences, the costs of all the different sequences are, 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 are placed against each other. And of course, theta has a limit of 11,000 columns and rows of the matrix. So with 14,000 players, the matrix would be, would be too big. So, and also because, well, I started with 14,000 players and then you see theta is working and working and working. And it, takes, it, it took too long for me because I wanted to get some results, get some feel on the data, and then see how I can improve the analysis. So I thought, well, if I pick 1,000 players, let's see what happens, and then based on that, I can try to improve the analysis. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. But uh, uh, another suggestion might be uh, to do it in R. Because R is computational much quicker, and R doesn't have the limit on the on the size of the matrix. So, what I heard, and when you read into the, the, the like the sequence analysis for R, then they claim that they can do it with like 30,000 30, sequences. So that would be a way to solve the issue as well. Yeah. Um, to get back to to my presentation, uh, I'm very much interested in big teams and small teams, and how I operationalized that was with team status. And basically what team status is for me is uh, performance of a team in the past five years. And then performance is then ranked in the league and that weighted for the strength of the league in, in, in Europe. I won't get into too much detail for that. Um, and um, uh, when you get that for each team for each year, then you get a very precise ranking. And uh, because in sequence analysis, you're very much interested in, in elements and in a limited number of elements. So what I did what, with the ranking was I basically cut it in five and then I have five different status groups which the top 20% of teams in status group 5 and the lowest 20% of teams in status group 1. And I have uh, another group, which are all the teams which are not included in the status rank. 
So it's a, it's a very big group of teams. <laughs> so basically there are, there are six different uh, status groups in which a player can be. And to give you an example of uh, how careers or what my data looks like, um, is that uh, it's here with, with two players. And you see for player one, uh, I don't know if it's visible in the back, but uh, he started his career for the first two years in playing for teams in stage group two. Then he moves up and plays for teams in stage group four for three years. Moves up again, plays for teams in stage group five for four years, and then he, at the end he moves down and he plays again in stage group two for two years. And if you look at player two, then uh, it's a much easier career, sim simpler career. Um, you see that they played in stage group five for six years, and then afterwards they moved down to stage group three and played there for five years. And then their career stops at 11 years, which is, yeah, it's just an example. So, um, But it gives you an idea about uh, like what, what the sequence looks like and what, what the data looks like. And um, as Diane said, or asked me, it's also to talk a little bit about sequence analysis and uh, to give a short introduction about, uh, about sequence analysis. Um, first of all, uh, the goal of sequence analysis is to uh, examine similarity between sequences. And also, once you have examined that similarity, to uh, see if you can classify similar sequences into clusters so that you get a grip on what's the overall structure in the data. Um, and yeah, really what you, what you want to do or what you want to achieve is uh, I have this complicated longitudinal data and I want to get an understanding of the overall structure of the, the data. And in order to do so, sequence analysis has a, what they claim is a holistic perspective on the sequence where they take the entire sequence into account, what it looks like. And that is of course like different from event history models which are much more focused on individual transitions. And uh, once that one guy, he explained it in the sense that if you use event history analysis, uh, you're, you're, looking, you're watching through a pigeonhole or a very strong lens uh, to look at transitions in longitudinal data. You have a very powerful tool to understand these transi transitions. But with sequence analysis, you're not necessarily focused on the transitions, but you're much more focused on, okay, what, what does the entire sequence look like? And in that sense, uh, people often say that they are uh, yeah, more or less complementary to each other. Um, and when you look at sequence analysis in how, it, how it's used in sociology, uh, is that in sociology you see that it's very often used in life course or in career uh, research. And then questions that you ask is, okay, what are typical career patterns? Or how do uh, young adult women combine their work, their education, and uh, their family formation in, in, their, in their early career? And these kind of questions are, are asked with, 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 the, with the help of sequence analysis. And also to give you uh, a little bit of an idea and also some pointers for, 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 for reading is uh, of, of an idea about the development of sequence analysis is that there were basically two waves of sequence analysis and you had on the one hand the first wave started more or less in the 1980s, halfway 1980s until or the beginning of the 1990s. It's very much associated with the work of Andrew Abbott and uh, the first wave ended around the turn of the millennium and there was a very interesting exchange in 2000 between, uh, on the one hand, uh, Andrew Abbott and on the other hand, Lawrence Wu, about uh, the benefits of sequence analysis or the drawbacks of sequence analysis. And based on that, that first period, uh, there was a started a second wave where other people tried to uh, improve on sequence analysis and try to uh, correct the different errors made. And I think the second wave is very nicely uh, summarized in a special issue in Sociological Methods and Research in 2010. And a very interesting review articles uh, by, for instance, Eisenbach and Fazam, or by Prinsky, Fay and Kohle, but also, for instance, by Brendan Hopkins, who is, uh, of course, affiliated to uh, Limerick. Yeah. 
So and uh, yeah, it's uh, in in that sense you really saw after the millennium that the, the methods are still de being developed, were being developed, and that there were new answers formulated to the criticisms. And I think now it's still a field which is which is very much in development, and new ways are being thought of and brought up to uh, to, to 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 describe sequences, for instance. So, with that background, um, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, what sequence analysis, or how, how you do it, or what, what the logic is behind it. Um, and uh, first, if you want to uh, compare sequences, uh, there are two uh, key terms which you need to know uh, in sequence analysis, and one is elements and the other is episodes. And uh, basically an element is a, a, a state through which a, a unit can pass through, through which a, a person can pass through. And then the, an episode is a prolonged period in which one when one, one individual state within the same state. Um, this might be a little bit abstract, but uh, to make a little bit concrete with the example again of the two players, um, you see that player one, uh, he had three elements in his career, namely status group two, status group four, and status group five, and then status group two, but we already saw it in the beginning. Um, and for player two, he only has two elements, so status group five and status group three. So the, the element is really, yeah, for me, it's the organization through which an individual passes, but it might also be, for instance, whether you're employed or unemployed or in schooling and, and, and these kind of things. So really a state through which you can pass. And then episodes is, yeah, the prolonged periods. Uh, so what you see for player one is that he has four episodes in his career. So first episode, second, third, and fourth. And for player two, you see that he has, again, a simpler career, which is with only two episodes in his career. So these are yeah, the, the basic building blocks to, to make the sequences. And um, what you first want to do with sequence analysis is, okay, I want to try to compare different sequences to each other and how similar or how dissimilar they are. And in order to do so, um, it, you try to transform one sequence into another. And you have two operations for that. On the one hand, you have substitutions and you have what they call indels. What happens with substitution is basically you take one element out or you put a new element into, you substitute an element for another element. And what happens with indel is that you first delete an element and you insert a new element. So indel is also insertion and deletion. Um, and um, you, yeah, what, what, what you try to achieve with these kind of things is, okay, how, how much sub substitution do I need to change one sequence into another? And also the substitutions and indel comes at a certain cost, and uh, yeah, these costs are really what determines how far a sequence is from from the other sequence. And uh, issue of transformation cost is a is a very difficult one for sequence analysis because uh, the analyst himself needs to set the cost, uh, and that's always a little bit arbitrary. Um, but basically, what they say is that there are two ways to set costs to to transform elements into each other, sequences into each other, and one way is like to have it theoretically driven or to have it uh, more data driven. So theoretically driven you would have certain theoretical reasons to say well from changing from this state to another state is really close by or far away so I said costs in a certain way. And there are also data driven methods which basically ask okay how often do I see two elements, uh, uh, how do you say that, uh, how do you see two elements succeeding each other in the sequence. And the more often I see that uh, the, the easier it is to change between sequences. So in a sense the, the closer the two, two elements are in the sequence. But then you would like, set costs much more in terms of, uh, of transition rates, these kind of things. And if you look at that, you can 
Yeah. 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 You really use the data to see. Okay. How how often do I see certain sequences occurring naturally in the in the data, and thus how yeah how close or far are these elements uh, to each other? Um, no, 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 no. Um, but um, because it's not, there's there's no element of time in it, and there's also because there were, there was a, a big uh, in the, the the first wave there was a big discussion. Okay, what do these costs actually represent? And I think a, a good way to think about the costs is just okay. How far are two elements from each other? And that's it. And there's no other uh, meaning in terms. Okay, how often is it? How 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 do you say, how difficult is it to make a, transi one, a transition from one state to another state or something like that. It's really, uh, in some sense, it's, 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 it's something that you use to get a grip of the data on. And it's, there's, there's not really a substantive meaning to the cost. Yeah. Another question about the data, it's, it's very much fixed, yeah. But as I see, as I look at sequences, they start at the month that the player turns 16, up until the point that he leaves professional football. Um, and uh, so that means that the transfer windows, they occur at different periods in the sequence. But obviously, if you look at the data from when do transfers start, then you see that by far most transfers are made in July or in July and August and January, because then are the, 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 the transfer windows. But the, yeah, they're really enmeshed in the sequences, because I could calculate when a player who turned 16 in, let's say, June 2000 or June 95, when the transfer windows are. But yeah, I didn't do that. But so it's much more uh, uh, yeah, uh, enmeshed in the data, I think. Um, so to get back to sequence analysis, after you did your substitutions and, and indels to transform of, uh, sequences into each other, and you set transformation costs, what you let the computer decide basically is what is the cheapest way to transform one sequence into another. And um, yeah, there's, there's an algorithm for that, uh, which, which tries, to, tries to find to determine the, 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 the cost, most cost-effective way. And in that sense, also, like you get a cost matrix in the end. And the cost matrix is really an expression, okay, how far is one sequence from the other sequence? So, no, 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 the, 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 it's, they use a Niedermann-Wunsch algorithm, which is uh, borrowed from computational science to try to, if you have different ways in which what you can tr transform one sequence into another, to determine what the cheapest way is in terms of the cost of what you said. Yeah, yeah. It dep very much depends on the algorithm that you use, but there's very much consensus in the field that this is the algorithm that you should use to to get to your cost metrics. It also depends on your input, how you code the way, how many status groups yeah. you Yeah, very much. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In that sense, that's one of the the, the major criticisms. Is uh, it's it, it might be a good way to get a grip of your overall structure, but the understanding that you get is also very much determined by yourself because you set you de de define the different states that you're in, and you also define the costs to, to go from one state to the other. So yeah, in that sense, it's, uh, um, th there are a lot of decisions to be made by the, by the analyst and him or herself. And uh, yeah. So this is the longest grant in the research? And 
yeah, yeah. Then, then there needs there needs to be grounds for it. But uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of different ways to solve the same question, the same question basically. So, for instance, what I did here is I used transformation costs of transformation rates to set the cost between different elements. And then somebody said to me, "Yeah, but you have an ordinal scale, basically, from like the top teams to the bottom teams. Why don't you use the difference in terms of the ordinal scale?" And, and yeah, that's also a possibility. And there's not really one way to determine which is best or which is worst. And then I asked, "Okay, what should I do?" He said, "Well, why don't you just try and see what brings the nicest results, which you can like really uh, interpret in the nicest way." So in that sense, it's uh, uh, th th there's arbitrary. Definitely. Yeah, the size of your sample uh, plays a role, and also, of course, how you drew, drew your sample. Yeah, and that is also an issue which is here at stake because um, I, I basically look at one one fourteenth of my entire sample, and. Um, when you uh, look at, for instance, the distribution of transfer fees, then you see that 90% um, of transfers make up 10% of transfer fees, and 10% make, make up 90% of transfer fees. So you could argue that uh, there is a very small group of players which are very special in a sense. And uh, by drawing a sample, yeah, you might miss out on these transitions, which are really very interesting in, in a certain sense. So. Yeah, that's that's one of the drawbacks of of, define, of doing it in this way. Yeah. Um, what I just said about transformations and about transformation costs might be a little bit abstract. So what I also did again is in the example of the two different players, how you might change one sequence into another sequence. So, for instance, you have player two. If I want, would say that I want to change sequence of player one into that one of player two, and then see how, how how similar they are, I would say, well, let's try to get the first two years where he's in stage group two substituted for stage group five, then three years in which he's in stage group four also substituted into stage group five, and to uh, to determine how how far away that is, and I need to assign certain costs of these these two substitutions. And you have one year in common in which they are in the same status group and then you would also need for these five years you would need to again uh, substitute one element uh, the, the, the status group 5 or status group 2 into status group 3 and then also again for these substitutions uh, assign uh, certain uh, substitution costs and then you have one expression okay how, how, how similar or how dissimilar are these two sequences to each other um, and what you let the algorithm decide is okay there, there might be different ways you could also think about, okay, I first delete all these elements and then insert the new element, and you let the algorithm basically decide, okay, which is the cheapest way to, 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 to do so. Um, after you uh, run the algorithm, what you end up with is like the, the cost matrix about, okay, how much does it cost to transform one sequence into another sequence, and that for all the sequences. And... Uh, what you really want to do to get a grip of the overall structure is you want to try to find if there are certain clusters of similar sequences which are similar to each other and also similar in their profile towards all the other sequences. Um, and here again is another source of, uh, yeah, of um, how do you say, uh, arbitrariness because you need to have a certain clustering method 
and uh, after you use the clustering method, you also need to determine, okay, when do I stop clustering and how many clusters do I end up with? And that's, on one hand, yeah, there are certain rules of thumb, of course. I mean, if you use Ward's clustering method, then you could look at the variance within clusters and so. Uh, but it's also very much up to the question, okay, uh, how much clusters is really, uh, can I interpret in a useful way? So in that sense, there's also yeah, a little bit trying to find a good way which you think makes sense for, for the data that you have. And uh, after you did your clustering, then there's a third step, and that's really, okay, I have these different clusters of similar sequences, and how do I interpret these clusters? Um, and then you could, for instance, look at uh, the differences in how much episodes or how much elements sequences have, how much time they spend in the different uh, elements. Uh, you could look at the the Medoid sequence, or you could compare clusters to ideal types or so, or you have different ways to visualize clusters and to try to interpret them based on that visualization. And this is really, well, I think what is now very much in development is, okay, how do I, what kind of methods do I have to, to make sense of the clusters, of sequences, and how, yeah, how much similarity is, to, is there within the cluster, and these kind of uh, questions. It's really um, an area which is, I think, very much in development. You cluster based on the, 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 the cost to transform one sequence into another. Yeah. So the trajectory of that cost of clustering. So in economics you may have different trajectories. No. No, what it what what it what it does and again there's there's with transformations or substitutions there's not really an element of time in it. Um, what you basically do is okay. How much does it? How much effort does it take for me to change one one sequence into another? Mm -hmm. And I add all this uh, this effort. I add it together, and that's the cost to transform one sequence into another. That's that's the that, that's the what the, the sequence what the algorithm does, mm -hmm. and then what you cluster is you do that for every sequence, and then what you cluster is okay. How similar are sequence in their profile towards all the other sequences? So how, um, uh, how, how you, you might have five different sequences and how different are two sequences to each other in terms of their similarity to, to all the other sequences. What I understand is from the aggregation of all the costs. trajectory then of course there there shouldn't be too much uh, difference in terms of, of the costs that you have to transform one sequence into another but it's not uh, I understand that you might have two sequences which are very similar in the beginning mm -hmm. and very different in the end have a cost of five to transform each other into each other yeah. and you have a third sequence which is similar at the start or very dissimilar at the start but very similar at the end yeah. and then you also have a cost of five and you don't take that into account yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
there are some methods, um, like what uh, what Brandon Halpin wrote about. He has uh, he he uh, changed, like he uh, adjusted the optimal matching uh, algorithm in a sense that. Uh, if you stay for a very long time in your own, in, if you have an episode very or very long before you uh, before you need to transform one sequence, uh, that the costs are lowered. I think, if I say it correctly. So basically, he takes into account okay, how much time did you spend in the different in the different states, because he argues that if you change very frequently, the meaning of the change might be less than if you stayed into one state for a very long time and then suddenly you change again. So, for instance, if you work and you every year you change jobs, then it might be not so consequential, but if you stay in the same institution for 15 years, you suddenly change jobs, that that is consequential. So there, there are some developments uh, at, in this area, that area, but I'm not aware of what you say, that you really take the, the, the trajectory of the sequence into account. But uh, okay. well, that to talk a little bit about the methods of sequence analysis, and now to go back to, to, my, uh, to my own results again. Um, so what I have is a sequence analysis of like the 1,000 players, uh, and I base the transformation costs. What I said already is on the transition rates between the different elements, and uh, then I clustered all the different sequences, and I came to a solution of five groups, uh, and that's because uh, uh, I saw the variance within clusters like increase very dramatically when I have more of less than five groups, and uh, I think five groups is also a number of groups which I can I can I can deal with. And what I try to do is I try to interpret these five groups in terms of the early and late selection models that I, that I uh, first pass or uh, designed, or like the, the fish pond metaphor. And to give you a very brief overview of my results, and I'll go into the three different groups uh, later of, uh, after this, is that I see a very big group of around 45% of the players in which uh, I see early selection with a tournament model, and uh, what you see is very clearly you see a small group of winners in which people like they move into high stage teams very early on and they maintain their position and you see a very large group of losers basically so you see people moving into high stage teams and then very quickly moving out again then you also see some signs of, of late selection like a group of around 15 percent of players who move into or who first stay at a lower level and then move up later on in their career and finally, I have a group which is uh, very big, 40% of the players, which I find very difficult to classify. And for, of course, it's not very satisfying, but it also shows very much that I'm still very much working on this, and it's, it's very much work in process, of a progress. So to look at the three different groups, uh, what I did, uh, like I have a, a couple of ways to interpret the sequences, but what I show you is based on the sequence index plots, and what the sequence index plot basically shows is on the vertical axis, you see uh, the number of sequences, so basically 450 basically means that there are 450 sequences in it, more or less. And then on the uh, uh, horizontal uh, line, you see the number of months after the 16th birthday of a player. And I've added some reference lines for, because I think it's easier to interpret when you have these reference lines. At the 48th month, 96th, 144th, 192nd, 240th month, which basically uh, relate to, okay, here is the player 20, he's 24, uh, he's 32 and he's 36. So uh, early on in the career, midway in the 20s, and then towards the end. And uh, then the third thing, what you need for interpretation is uh, like an agenda. You see different colors, and basically what me what the colors mean is that the darker the color, the higher the state's position of the team. Um, and what you see here is what I think uh, uh, the group of 
uh, early selection with, with tournament mobility, which, as I said, has more or less 45% of, of the players in it. And you see uh, very much two, gr two groups, uh, a, a top group of 80% uh, of the players. Uh, you should see that they move into high-status teams early on, and you see as the careers progress, you see that the, 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 the sequences become lighter over time. And I think yeah, that's a sign that they moved into a high-status position, were filtered out, and then they need to move down towards the rankings. So in a sense, what I think that you see here is really, yeah, you have tournament mobility to select the best talents, but here you see the losers of the tournament mobility. And uh, then you have a small group, which is more or less 20% of all the sequences in, in this group. And uh, you see again, they move up relatively early in their career, and you see that they stay uh, almost their entire career, career within the high, t high teams. And yeah, this is really the group of, of, of the winners of tournament mobility. Uh, an interesting I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm only in the Premier League and the top, top, top groups, but very here people just dropping it. Yeah, what is, it's an interesting question because it has very much to do about how I selected my data. Because what I see is when a player, he moved into professional football already. So in, cer in a certain sense, uh, he already made the step into, prof in the, prof into the professional league. Um, what happens, of course, is before you turn professional, uh, what you hear at least, is uh, that there's also basically contests. And you, see, you hear about, you have youth teams or youth squads where of each 11 players, there are only two players who make it into the professional teams. So, um, and because I don't have really data on how this youth trajectory develops, so I can't really make any, to say any, uh, say that, make any real uh, statements about that. What I think you see here is, um, uh, the players who make it into football, there's, there's still a selection going on about okay, who is going to be uh, a star player, who is going to be an, uh, an important player in their team. And you see, what I think is that these people were all given the chances, okay, you're good enough to pass our youth selection, but then if you're good enough to really develop into that, that first team regular player that we want, well, that's the second question. And I think here you see that in their early 20s, there's a decision moment where people uh, like it's decided whether like, they might drop out or whether they stay or not. It's ordered in terms of the five state, uh, five clusters of groups. So here you see one cluster, and here you see one cluster, okay. and then the second ordering is in terms of length of the sequences, and then length in different status positions. Okay. So the basically the lower you go, longer the sequences are, and then within sequences of the same length, the lower you go, the longer they stay in high status teams. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's uh, what people often say with, with when you use watch clustering is that you get a, a, a very a small number of very small clusters and a small number of very big clusters. And yeah, maybe you could also see it here uh, in the sense that this cluster is very big. Of obviously, I mean, it's thirty-five percent of all the data that I have, mm -hmm. and this cluster it's only it's eighty players, something like that. 80, 90 players, so it's it's not even 10%. So there's a, there's a big difference in, in clusters. be very interesting. So, uh, I'll get back to that when I when I talk about my results a little bit, or when I 
in my conclusion. Um, to continue to the second group of layers that I identified, which is uh, a, a cluster of more or less 15% of the players. And I think what you see here is uh, more or less late selection. You see that they also, uh, before their 20th birthday, a lot of them, they entered professional football, but they started lower on, and then in their early 20s, they are somehow selected to go up and move to bigger teams and higher teams and play, play uh, for these bigger teams for a much longer period after they, they are selected into it. So for the better part of their, uh, of their 20s. That's a good point. Yeah, I struggled a little bit with this figure because I tried to do stuff with the uh, size of the different bars, and then you have one in which you have a very, like, a very, uh, how do you say, a lot of white space in between bars, and that makes it also different to interpret. But this is also not so. Uh, so it's a good, uh, good point that you make. Uh, um, and then we get to my third group, which I find very difficult to classify. And also here, I think also are the reasons which why they are difficult to classify. Um, it's a group again, more or less 400 players, so more or less 40% of, of, of all the players. And what you really see here is that most of their time in their career, they play for non-professional teams. And uh, the difficulty is with the non-professional team because the meaning of non-professional is not really clear. Um, non-professional might mean, for in, because I look at only the top two leagues in every country, might mean the third league or the fourth league, fourth league or amateur football in these seven countries. But it might also mean, for instance, top league in Belgium or in Brazil or in Argentina. So the, the meaning of, of the category of non-professional is very unclear. Um, so that makes it difficult to, to, to think about okay, what are these players doing at these different times. Um, and uh, one thing which is clear from the graph is, okay, apparently they spent very short periods of time in professional football in these seven countries. But then again, uh, it's not really clear why they spent that, that, that little time. It might be that there's a very good pr promising Brazilian player moves into Europe, can't get accustomed to the playing style, moves back to Brazil. That might be a reason to have a very short time span. It might be that there's a player moving up from the lower leagues and then he can't make it at, at a higher level and then he drops out again. It might be that there's a youth player, very promising, but gets an early, uh, like uh, gets injured and never gets to his own, uh, his old level or whatever. It's very difficult. I think to make sense of okay what's happening in these careers. No, I haven't done it by the seven countries, but that's also because it's very difficult to think about okay, being in professional football yeah. not necessarily means yeah. staying in the same country. So in clusters there might be three, four, five different countries. Uh, so I didn't really take the country into account. And when I, uh, what I did is I looked at the origin of players and what you see in these groups are indeed many players from Latin America, from Africa and so on. So that might be, they, they might move in later in professional football because they first play in their own country and then move to Europe. Um, what you're saying but what I think is what you do then is that you leave out a lot of interesting players mm -hmm. because then you look at 
when I, when I think of the transfer market, what happens on in, in terms of international transfers and what we see in the news is really people moving between countries. And when you stay in, in within your own country, that also says something about about you as a player. And especially, there's a big, very big difference between a player staying in England or staying in Holland. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know, or French. Yeah. You look at, you know, French and more. Yeah. I, I haven't really, <laughs> I haven't really looked at it from that perspective because so I. Yeah. You can integrate it yeah. I have data on their nationalities, yeah. and also on their second nationality. So that might be a, a, a way to say, okay, you're integrated in the country that you're integrated enough, and you stayed there long enough to get a second nationality. But I haven't looked at the data in that way. And what I, what I thought about doing about this non-professional category is basically split, split it in two. Say, okay, I have non-professional, which is non seven, non these seven countries that I look at, and non-professional, which are these seven countries. And then I basically, what I do is I filter out, okay, you move up from the lower leagues in these seven countries, or you move from abroad. Please, so, for, I'm assuming for non-performance, there's just no data because they're not in the top tiers, you don't have that data. Not necessarily. It depends a little bit where they are. Okay. So it, that's why we see the tail at the end. That that's non-professional yeah. non teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what you see with this group is that that they are that they are much older than all the other players. Like the, all the other groups are more or less similar in terms of when people are born. And here you see people who are born around 1970, and that would explain that they moved out of uh, professional football, uh, but to a, a lower level team, and then the data stops recording what he's doing. That might be happening, and that's also. Like when you look at it, when you take when you take out this part, then the two like more or less look very similar. So then you could say that it's it's a similar kind of group or, or that. So players transfer outside of Europe is not in the data He isn't. If he played, if he played at any one any one point in his career for the top two or for a team in the top two leagues in the best seven countries in Europe, then he's in the data set, no matter how short that period was. Uh, not necessarily, because uh, the data does track, uh, for instance, moves in, in, in Brazil. And uh, what you see with the data is that uh, the further away you move from Germany, so either you go, <laughs> yeah, because the data is German. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, th there's also data on the Korean League, but it's not really trustworthy data. And the same for the Russian League and the Ukrainian League. And so there's a reason why I picked these seven countries, because I, I, kind of, I kind of much more trust the data for these seven countries. And then what you have, for instance, in Germany, you have a third Bundesliga, you have the Regionalligas, and then yeah, you have all these lower leagues. And there's a lot of data in it about these lower leagues, but also, again, yeah, it's not so, yeah, not, so, not so reliable. And, for instance, the team for which I played my last match, which obviously is an amateur team, and we played at the very lowest level of the amateur league in Holland, it's also in the data, because they had one player who moved to a professional team. <laughs> I should have stayed. <laughs> yeah. But that, like, it's it, it says something about the data. And one of the the what I found very difficult is okay, where do I put the boundaries? Of, okay, this is professional football. This is not professional football. And and uh, and and how do I how do I look at it? So presumably, this this, this in business, this 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 database is used by. To, to track players and to track this, that's the purpose of the database, that they sell it. 
what what I in, in terms of business, uh, what I see, my impression from this database is that there were just a bunch of uh, enthusiasts about football, and they started collecting the data. Yeah, and it's it's also like what is behind it is very much a Wikipedia community. So there's people who think, oh, this is interesting. Let's just find some data on football players, and somehow because everybody uh, co collaborated, like it certainly turned out to be something which is kind of useful. But what you see happening with this data is that there are some people, and there, there are a couple of these kind of databases. And but you have some people who uh, link up, okay, I have performance data on players and I have data on the transfer histories and some of the basic information. Mm -hmm. And basically what I start to do now is I start to scout for all the teams. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of small companies, I don't know for other countries, but in, at least in the Netherlands that are popping up where there's somebody who <laughs> graduated on one of these projects and thought, oh, that's interesting, let's sell it to the big teams. So the, the data is used in, in, in that sense. Yeah, um, what I what I did is I, I looked at the at the overall figures in the FIFA data and also in the UEFA data. And UEFA has a lot of data on the uh, transfer fees and how clubs pay pay for transfers and so. And what I see very similar tendencies in the data. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, that is so, so far that is really my only check because it's it's difficult. Uh, with the resources that I have to get a, a, a paid database. You know, I was asking more in terms of how that type science checks whether the own data is reliable. Yeah. Yeah. What they what they have is they they have a couple of people uh, and they are uh, country heads or region heads and they're responsible for checking the data which is uh, which is given to them. Yeah. But it's. And it's, uh, it's it's very interesting question. It's also uh, it, w it was an issue for me. Okay, mm -hmm. it's nice that I have this data, but how reliable is it? Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent a fair good amount of time on, on comparing and so. Mm -hmm. And I really think the data, at least when I um, when I set the definitions right, so mm -hmm. when I set the different definitions in a certain sense that I think this is professional football, mm -hmm. it more or less resonates what I see in other. In other reports and so on. Yeah, it's good that you said for my registration because it's known that in Wikipedia if something's not very yeah. popular, people write all kinds of garbage yeah. and it takes forever and so yeah. some of things that pop. Yeah. And I think this case, if you want to submit some nonsense, yeah. it's your name. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Some of and and they, have, they have what they have is basically their fixed editors to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to check the data, what, the, what, they, uh, what they are given. And in Wikipedia, of course, it's the entire community which needs to. Needs to monitor. And the cost of transfers is in this same German database, or is it only in the FIFA? No, it's in the sa it's in the same German database. Um, transfer fees. Transfer fees. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that um, is something which I find very interesting. And when I look at the ent entire amount of costs and the number of uh, uh, big big transfers and so, then I think what more or less again resonates with what FIFA and UEFA are producing. Um, but the problem with uh, transfer fees is that uh, they're not necessarily disclosed. So yeah, there's obviously a certain uh, tension in, okay, how, how reliable is this? And it might also be different for countries because in some countries, football teams are more companies right? or they're 
listed companies, so they need to have openness of their books. While in other countries, there are associations where they really have members. So they don't have this, this necessity to uh, open up their books and stuff. So the transfer fees are really in, uh, a different issue. And that's also one of the reasons why I haven't really done something with it, because I find it difficult to, uh, to trust the reliability of the transfer fees. And you have the same issue again. The further away you get from Germany, the further away you get from in time, the more, uh, the more sparse the data becomes, and the less, I think, reliable the data Yeah. Uh, can I show that? I I can't really show that. What I did is um, I spent a good year on identifying. Okay, I here have a sequence of a player, and I know that some data is missing because I see that he starts playing for what is obviously a professional team. So for, for instance, he starts playing for Ajax, but I don't have the, or he starts playing for Manchester United. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the time when he moves towards Manchester United. Or when the data says it's a player who's already retired, he's still, I don't have the last stop. So I don't have, uh, I don't have a stop where I can say, okay, this is not a professional team anymore. So I, I, I check that and then from, from based on that, like the most things that I got back for players starting in Brazil, starting far away from Germany, basically, mm -hmm. and then uh, you see that they are that that, that then uh, because then you can check also with other other files which are also online because Wikipedia has a lot of data on, on, on footballers. And there are diff different uh, different websites. You have uh, EU football database and so, and then you can kind of compare different data sets, and uh, then you see that uh, yeah, that that here you often lack data from the third league in Portugal and uh, mm -hmm. and so. And what, what I did then was I, I thought, okay, um, I know that my data in TransferMarkt is not okay, so I just uh, substituted with the data that I have from the other source and try to improve the data in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Mm. I think, yeah, I think in a sense it's, 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 um, it's an appealing database because uh, because of the scope, because it really collects uh, data on the player basis and on a very wide set, set of issues. While, um, for instance, there are a couple of guys who are working in Switzerland, they're affiliated to the C CIES, it's, the, the, it's a, an institute uh, in Neuchâtel which is also affiliated to, to FIFA. And what they did is they uh, look at the players which are playing in a certain league at a certain year and then they look at their country of play <coughs> or they look at their first team that they played for and based on that they try to like say something about okay well how do careers develop and so and then I think okay my data might have issues but at least it's an improvement that I know all the different stops that people stopped at in their career yeah um, I think that <laughs> I think also finished talking about uh, the last group um, to uh, conclude a, a little bit. Uh, so, what I try to do here is I try to explore and describe careers of professional football players uh, in terms of the organizations that they pass through. And what I 
paid attention to was the fish pond dilemma, basically. And then what I think what you saw, what you see in my data at this moment, is that there, that are really two models of career development. On the one hand, you see early selection with tournament mobility. On the other hand, you see late selection. And uh, not so satisfying is that there's still a group of players which I think which I find difficult to classify. So there's more work for me to do as well. Um, and also, when you think of further questions, I think what Diane um, uh, earlier referred to was my first question. Also, is um, I see that if you are in the early selection group with tournament mobility, somewhere in the beginning of your 20s, you move out. <laughs> well, if you're in the late selection group, then somewhere in the, early, in the beginning of your 20s, you move up. So that really is uh, an idea, okay, there are transitions happening there, or there are tipping points, or something like that happening in careers, and really what happens there. Uh, and are there certain teams which put players on upwards tra trajectories or on downwards trajectories? Uh, and I think it also really nicely shows what sequence analysis is, me is meant to do is, okay, with this I kind of have an overall structure of an, an overall overview of the data and now I can focus on these transitions which I find interesting. So then you can think much more in terms of, of, of even history analysis and then you get into the complementary of the, of the two methods. And a uh, second question which um, <coughs> Which really it came to me because I also uh, started talking to the Dutch Football Association about my research, and what they were really interested in is okay, you just identify these different trajectories, but how well are we at identifying players before they start on these trajectories? So how well do we do in terms of uh, identifying the right players to play for our youth squads, and how well are the big teams doing to identify these players? And also, okay, uh, <coughs> if there is early selection happening and people are starting to move out. Uh, how do we um, how do we prepare players for that, and do we give them an honest chance to uh, to become a professional football player, or do we just keep them in order to to to, to play with these two, two two players which are really good and just have a team around these two players? And uh, also, uh, how do you prepare players? Okay, uh, the majority of players is moving out, and the majority of players might not make enough money for the rest of their lives from football. And how do I prepare? The players which I which I try to train or which are working in my team, how do I prepare them for that? So really, there's also a set of normative issues uh, involved, I think, which are which are also very interesting. And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, with my with with a little bit collaboration collaboration with the Dutch FA, there might also be very interesting uh, things to say about that based on my uh, my research. So I'd like to leave it at that. And it's four o'clock now as well, so it's a good time, I think. <laughs> and I'd like to thank you for your.